Every child growing up goes through some kind of rebellious phase. Now, some are much more dramatic than others. Uh, some children are just generally more submissive and compliant than others. But it's just, it's just part of our makeup. And I think it happens to everybody. We all come to this place where we think we know better than our parents. We reject their wisdom, their rules. We resent their authority. And the hope is that this phase is, is short-lived, but it's painful nonetheless. Parents suffer through this phase, and honestly, so do the kids. It's just a difficult time of life. Uh, I'm sure that you and I, we put our parents through some manner of that, and then if you are a parent, you've experienced it perhaps as well. But the truth is, our tendency to rebel has much deeper roots than that. It's not just children to parents. Uh, at its root, rebellion is a spiritual issue. Uh, the Bible tells us this page after page that our fundamental problem, our deepest problem, is a rejection of God. And that may seem strange to us, especially if you're a religious person, a Christian. My goodness, no, I don't, I don't reject God. I've never rejected God. I've always believed in God. But listen, the, the Apostle Paul in Romans chapter 1, when he speaks of those who are far from God, and that was all of us, at least at some point, he says, even though they knew God, they did not honor him as God or give thanks. In other words, there is a recognition of God in the heart, but a refusal to honor him, a refusal to live in worship, devotion, gratitude. And y'all, this, that right there, that's the birthplace of all sin. And it's not just a phase that some people go through. This is, the scripture tells us, this is the dominant reality of the whole human race. Every single person has done this, or is at present doing this. Uh, creation turns against the creator. Or to say it more personally, we like children have rebelled against our heavenly father. Now, I realize this is a heavy way to, to begin a sermon, <laughs> but this is actually the foundation for the wonderful good news of God's salvation. We have to dig down before we can be raised up, as it were. And this is the way Jesus paints the picture for us, right here in Luke chapter 15. If you've got a Bible, or a Bible app, or the Bible on your computer or phone, uh, however you access it, I'd love for you to turn to Luke chapter 15 with me, because Jesus is going to show us here in his longest, most detailed parable. It's so long, by the way, we're going to need two weeks to cover it all. So we're going to cut it short today and finish next week. But here in Luke 15, Jesus digs down. He shows us the true nature of sin, but then he raises up and he shows us the overwhelming grace that forgives and restores lost sinners. So we see both in their extremes today, and it gives us a, just a true, glorious picture of the gospel, the good news. And so as we consider the context, remember the context of Luke 15. If you were with us last week, verses 1 and 2, uh, we see that all the tax collectors and the sinners were coming to Jesus to listen to him. All the wrong kinds of people were hanging out with Jesus. And Jesus was embracing them, welcoming them in, eating with them, and the Pharisees and scribes, the upright religious people, they were grumbling. 
at this. Luke 15 verse 2 saying, this man receives sinners and eats with them. So that's the context in which this parable takes place. And in that case, the characters here in this parable are, are pretty clear. Jesus says to them, a man had two sons. Luke 15, 11, a man had two sons. Well, the man represents God, and each son is represented in Jesus' audience here. So the older son, the guy we'll look at next week, he is the good religious Pharisee. And the younger son, this is the tax collector, the sinner. He's the bad kid, <laughs> at least in the eyes of the older brother. He's the bad one. And he's our focus for today, the sinner. Now, what does the younger son do? Look at the story, Luke 15, beginning in 11 and 12. He comes to his father and he says, Give me the share of the estate that falls to me. In other words, give me my inheritance now, if you remember those old J.G. Wentworth commercials, you know, people would, would lift up the window of their apartment and scream out into the street, it's my money and I want it now. That's, that's, the, that's the message here. And there's a lot more in that short sentence than just what meets the eye. Think about, y'all, think about what an inheritance is. It is a measure of wealth that a parent passes down to their child. When? After they die. That's how it works. After they die, then you receive the inheritance. And so right off the bat, we're meant to see and hear the utter contempt in this son's request. He's saying to his dad, I wish you were dead. All I really want from you is the wealth that is due me. And so why don't you just hand it over now and save me the trouble of wasting my life waiting for you to die. Now that may seem extreme, but that's, that's how this story is meant to be interpreted. This is a son who wishes his father dead because all he really wants is the father's stuff. Now we, we've talked at length the last few weeks about ancient Jewish culture and how their culture was built solidly on the concepts of honor and shame. And what this son is doing here, it, it's shameful, but it's not just personally shameful. It's not just shame on him. What he's doing, this would have brought shame on the entire family. The entire community would have held this family in lower regard forevermore now because of what this son has done. Who raised this kid, they would have said, that he would act like this. And so Jesus begins this story with a shock that any child would ever act so disgracefully. But you know what? Right there, right afterward, there's an even bigger shock. So, Jesus says, the father divided his wealth between his two sons. Now this is a shock. R rather, rather than punishing this rebellious son, rather than cutting him off altogether, the father grants his request. Now in, in those days, you didn't write checks. You didn't keep your money in the bank. So the, 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 the dad couldn't take his son over to the ATM. No, the father's wealth would have consisted of land and crops and livestock and servants. That was the wealth. And that, that's what the inheritance would look like. When dad dies, we get the land. We take control of the property. We run the business. And so for the father to divide his wealth right here and now, 
That meant that he would have had to sell off some of the family land and livestock and crops. This, this isn't just money out of the bank. This is the family's livelihood. This is the family's identity for generations and generations. It's now being torn apart. But the father concedes. He gives the son what he asks for. Then we see in verse 13, not many days later, the younger son gathered everything together and went on a journey into a distant country. And there he squandered his estate with loose living. So this young man, he's, he's finally free to go and do all that his heart desires. He takes the money and leaves for a distant country, meaning he leaves not only his family, but he leaves his own kinsmen, his own countrymen, to go and live among the Gentiles. This is something no Israelite would have ever dared to do. And so what, what are we to understand here? This son, he's not just going on vacation. He's not just going to sow his, his wild oats and he'll be back soon. No, he's turning his back on everybody. And he is burning the bridge behind him. Both the family and the community would have written him off as dead. There is no going back from this. And if, if that all weren't enough, once he arrives in the distant country, he squanders, he wastes his estate, his inheritance, with loose living. He does all the bad things that he could never do under his father's watchful eye. Now he has no family name to live up to. He has no reputation to uphold. Now he's free. Y'all, right here, we are given a great picture of the nature of sin. Uh, most people, at least people who believe in sin to begin with, uh, most people we fixate on the last thing that we read, loose living. That phrase, he squandered his estate with loose living. And we say, ah, there's the sin. Sexual immorality, drunkenness, who knows what else, right? Let your imagination run wild with what loose living means. But that's the sin, right? That's the issue. That's the problem. And of course, y'all, there are a great many actions and specific behaviors that are sinful and wrong that the Bible condemns. We are given lists, Romans 1 uh, Paul gives a list in Galatians called the works of the flesh, uh, the Ten Commandments. We're given lists of specific behaviors that are sinful, yes. But the son's specific sins are not really the point of this parable. The point is his rejection of the Father. And this is the nature, the root of all sin. That we, you and I, we come to believe that true life and joy and pleasure and freedom come outside of God, not under God, not in God, but outside of Him, because God can't be trusted to do what's best for me. God is holding out on me. That was the lie the serpent told Adam and Eve when the first sin was committed. You're not going to die if you eat that fruit. You'll become like God. God's holding out on you. He doesn't want what's best for you. That was the first sin. 
the belief that there's, there's, there's life to be found outside of God because it can't be found in God, so I'm better off going my own way. That's the deeper roots of sin. Now, see, I feel pretty certain that as you're watching this, none of us wake up in the morning and say to ourselves, you know, I'm going to rebel against the Lord today. We're, we're not that malicious about it. Our sin doesn't, doesn't originate like that. Okay, so why do we still end up doing it? Why do we still sin? Why do we still rebel? Because at the roots, God is not my deepest trust. God is not my highest aim. And therefore, I go looking for life apart from Him. I'm convinced that life exists outside of God. He's not my greatest foundation. And therefore, something else becomes my foundation that is ultimately temporary, fleeting, self-centered, and therefore sinful. Y'all, the behaviors are merely the outcomes. The specific sins don't just happen. They originate from a heart that is rooted in self rather than rooted in the Lord. And so if a person cheats on a test or cheats on their taxes or cheats on their spouse, ultimately it all comes from a heart that does not trust and does not honor God. Although they knew God, they did not honor him as God or give thanks. And so all that the younger son does to pursue life apart from the father that he thinks is surely going to make him free, you know what it does in the end? It actually just enslaves him. Seeking for life results in death. Seeking for freedom results in slavery. That's how sin tends to operate. Look what happens in Luke 15, 14. When he had spent everything, a severe famine occurred in that country, and he began to be impoverished. So he went and hired himself out to one of the citizens of that country, and he sent him into the fields to feed swine. And he would have gladly filled his stomach with the pods that the swine were eating, and no one was giving anything to him. The money runs out, the party's over, and this young man ends up quite literally in the pig pen, which for an Israelite, this was the most detestable place a person could be the filthiest of all animals, the pigs. Y'all, what's Jesus communicating here? All that sin promises, it never actually delivers. And we ought to know that. We ought to know that. We've, we've lived it enough times to know that's true. All that sin seems to give us, it actually only takes away. Because there is no true life or joy or pleasure or freedom apart from God. It's the great lie that we are seduced into time and again every single day. There is no life, joy, pleasure, or freedom outside of God. This is what Solomon called chasing after the wind. What happens when you chase after the wind to take hold of it? You just end up empty-handed. You can't take it in hand. You feel the wind, you know it's real in some sense, but you can't ever catch up to it. That's what, that's what sin is. And y'all, some of us, we are living in ongoing cycles of sin that are continually leaving you empty, 
and guilty. And if we're willing to look into our lives and look into our own hearts, we can acknowledge that. We're continually coming up empty and feeling guilty. And y'all, in that case, I want you to be, I want you to be assured that this is a good news sermon. This parable was designed for you. This parable was designed for us. Anyone who knows what it is to live in rebellion and to come up empty, and actually to come up worse than empty, to be spiritually dead. Look now at how everything begins to turn. There in the pigsty, this young man remembers his dad. Verse 17, but when he came to his senses, I love that phrase, when he came to his senses, he said, how many of my father's hired men have more than enough bread, but I am dying here with hunger. I will get up and go to my father and will say to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and in your sight. I am no longer worthy to be called your son. Make me as one of your hired men. Now, this is, this is the beginning of repentance. Last week we talked a lot about repentance. This week carries the same flavor. This is the beginning of repentance. The son, look, the son here, he goes beyond just feeling guilty for his behavior. Certainly he feels guilty, but he doesn't stop there. Because guilt alone never changes a person. Guilt cannot change your heart, not by itself. The solution to this son's problems, uh, the solution is not somewhere inside of him that he can just work things out. No, he knows the only solution is back home. If there's any shred of hope left for me in this world, my father holds that key. And so I will get up and go to him. Y'all, for every sinner, for every sinner, you and me, this is our only hope as well. Not to sink down into self-pity, which is easy to do. Not to make excuses and wriggle kind of out of that feeling of, of guilt and shame and excuse ourselves and our sin away. No. Not to seek temporary self-help solutions. Not just to try to feel better about ourselves and ignore reality. No. The only hope for us is to go to the Father. Our only hope is to go to the Father. And look what happens when we do. Look at verse 20. So he got up and came to his father, but while he was still a long way off, his father saw him and felt compassion for him and ran and embraced him and kissed him. One of my very favorite verses in the Bible. Now imagine the scene. I mean, you try to picture this. This poor, filthy, utterly defeated young man who had no intention of ever coming home, who burned every bridge behind him when he left, who thumbed his nose at his father and ran off. Now, he slinks his way back home in absolute shame. And what is the father doing? Sharpening his knives? Plotting his revenge? No, the father is watching the horizon for his boy. He's looking. And he sees him yet still a far way off, 
and, and feels compassion. That word literally means that his stomach turns over inside of him. He's so moved. And with tears of joy, he runs to his son. Y'all, respectable Middle Eastern men never ran. It was considered improper to hike up your robe and expose your bare legs. That's what you had to do. But you think the father is thinking about etiquette in this moment? He doesn't care. He runs. And he grabs hold of his son. And he kisses him over and over. Now, this is a very made-for-hallmark moment right here. But hold on a minute. What about all the rebellion? What about the wasted inheritance? What about all that money? What about the shame that has been brought upon this family? Irreversible shame. What about making things right? It's a fair question. Certainly that's what the son has in mind. Remember, he's already practiced the speech he wants to deliver, and then he begins that speech, verse 21, And the son said to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and in your sight. I am no longer worthy to be called your son. He's right, you know. He's right. The young man had forfeited his sonship. He he owed a debt that he would never be able to repay. And and so his plan makes sense. Remember the plan. He, He wanted his father to make him as a hired servant so that he could work off his debt and try to earn some of his credibility back. Just let me work in the fields and I'll earn back what I can. But you notice that the father isn't even listening. The father has no interest in an apology in a repayment plan. Verse 22, but the father said to his slaves, quickly bring out the best robe and put it on him and put a ring on his hand and sandals on his feet and bring the fattened calf, kill it and let us eat and celebrate. For this son of mine was dead and has come to life again. He was lost and has been found. And they began to celebrate. This story really works against all of our religious impulses, doesn't it? I mean, on one hand, the son knows that his only hope is to come to his father. But even then, he can't just waltz his way back into the family. That's not how this works. Not after what he's done. The penalty must be paid. The wrong must be righted. The sin must be atoned for. And and even then, the son knows he's crossed a line that cannot be erased. Even if he works the rest of his life to repay what he took and wasted, he's crossed a line that can't be uncrossed. I know I'm no longer a son. Please just let me be a hired man. Give me a chance to bring a little balance back to the scales. Um, That's our natural religious impulse, right? That makes sense to us. But then we see the father's response. It makes no sense. The father does not demand an explanation. He does not require any repayment. He doesn't pull out the scales to measure the son's performance against the standard of righteousness. What does he do? He brings out a robe and the family ring 
and sandals. He clothes his son's shame and rags. And he says, prepare the fattened calf. Now, we're going to talk more about this next week. But the fattened calf was reserved for only the most extravagant occasion. It would feed the whole village. This is a party that everyone would have been invited to. The father is not talking about, you know, taking his son out to Ruby Tuesdays. He's talking about throwing a feast that everybody would have been a part of. This is the best day of the father's life. And so how, how are we supposed to make sense of all this? Because, because the question might be raised, well, wait, does this mean that God doesn't really care how we live? That, that righteousness doesn't matter? Because God, God's just a lovesick father. He's just a big softy. You can ultimately do whatever you want as long as you come back home in the end. Uh, as if God just kind of shrugs his shoulders at the rebellion and the sin and the, and the shame and the guilt. But you know, I, I mentioned, y'all, our religious impulses. And the truth is, a lot of times those impulses are, are right, or at least they're logical. Someone has to pay off the debt. Somebody has to bear the shame of all that sin so that honor might be restored. And this is the ultimate good news. Here's the good news. When the Father brings out the robe and the ring and the sandals and prepares the fattened calf, he is sending a clear message to his son. I am covering your shame. I am absorbing the cost. I am forgiving your sin. You are not my son because you are worthy. You are my son because I say so, and no one else gets to say otherwise. And y'all, this, this is the message of our faith. This is the uniqueness and the beauty of Christianity, that we are, listen, bad news, we are sinful and lost. We are ungodly and unworthy. That's just the truth. We have all sought life apart from God, and we've received only death in return. We are rebels by nature. But God, Ephesians 2 says, but God, being rich in mercy, because of his great love with which he loved us, he has made us alive together with Jesus Christ. He has covered our sin and our shame. Y'all, the one who told this parable, Jesus, is indeed the Son of God who laid down His life in order to give us life, in order to cover our shame and forgive our sins and make us beloved children of God. When we as sinners come to Jesus in faith, what happens? There is no demand for repayment. There is no insistence that we, that we compensate for what we've done, that we balance the scales. No, there's no earning our way in. There's no proof of time served to show how really sorry we are. No. When we turn to Jesus Christ in faith, we come in rags, but we receive a robe. We come empty, and yet we enter a feast. 
because it's called grace. We are treated opposite of what we deserve. Y'all, this, this parable, it shows us the true nature of sin and how sin is much worse than what we thought. Sin is not just errant behavior. It is a rejection of God Himself, and we've all done it. And yet, the same God who we rejected has loved us and pursued us with infinite grace, inexhaustible grace. We are more loved, we are more welcomed home than we can possibly imagine. The Father that we rejected has nonetheless loved us and sent His own Son to save us. Y'all, whatever sin and shame you are living in right now, there is a loving and gracious Father scanning the horizon, looking for you. No need to clean up first. No need to practice your apology. No need to balance the scales. You simply turn to Jesus and trust His grace to save you. And then you get to hear God say, Let us celebrate, for this child of mine was dead, but is alive again. He was lost, she was lost, but now found. That is the good news for sinners like you and me. May we receive it by faith. Let's pray. Father, my, my prayer this morning um, is for those who may not know you or who are just now coming to faith in your name, in the name of Jesus Christ. My prayer is for them um, that they would drop all of their uh, resume, their spiritual works, good or bad, and allow you, Lord, to be their righteousness, that Jesus Christ covers us. Um, I pray also, though, for me, and I've been a Christian 22 years, that this is not just a message for, for people who need to get saved, but this is, this is for me. That in my sin, in my ongoing desire to seek life outside of you, Father, would you bring me to repentance? Would you bring me to my senses that I might come to you? Not, Lord, with, with good works to, to pay you back. Not with, um, you know, not with religion in my mind. But would I return to you, Lord, trusting in Jesus Christ? to cover me, to forgive me, to restore me, to restore us. And Lord, to bring us in, that we might live as sons and daughters and not as those out in a distant country. Um, Lord, remind us that we might celebrate the words uh, in Isaiah 61, that I will rejoice greatly in the Lord. My soul will exalt my God. For you, Father, you have clothed me with garments of salvation. You have wrapped me in a robe 
of righteousness. Lord, we have nothing to stand on but that right there. Nothing at all, except that you, through your Son, Jesus Christ, declare us righteous, wrap us in righteousness because of what he's done, not what we've done. And so, Father, give us rejoicing. Bring us into the feast to celebrate just how wonderful your grace is. And let us not live as wayward children. Let us not continually put one foot in and out. But Lord, knowing how good you are, how wonderful and gracious you are, let us be a people that we declare there is only true joy and life and freedom and goodness under our Heavenly Father, in His grace, through His Son, by His Spirit. Lord, we will not find it elsewhere. And so, Lord, let us refuse to even try. Give us hearts, Lord, that are wholly devoted to you as those who have been brought near, enrobed with righteousness, and brought into the feast of your good grace. Lord, let everything about this warm our hearts over and change us. We pray in Christ's precious name. Amen.